If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Now last time in our study in Revelation we got as far as verse 1 and we kind of camped on that and did a little bit of a topical study. And I'd like to go back to Revelation 5 verse 1 where John said, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now as we've already said, as we come to chapter 4, I believe John and, of course, the entire Christian church is uh, raptured to heaven. I believe that in verse 4, chapter 1, excuse me, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, we see the rapture in view. And as soon as John is, uh, is uh, caught up to heaven, uh, he begins to record what he sees. And it really goes beyond his ability to really put it into words. And we studied chapter 4, and that brought us to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, now John looks at God the Father sitting on his throne, and he notices that he is holding something in his right hand. On closer inspection, he sees that the Father has a scroll in his right hand. Well, what is this scroll? We've already looked at it, and I believe it is the title deed to the earth. The title deed to the earth. Now, let me stop quickly and review from last time uh, some of the background information that we looked at that uh, will help us to understand what's going on here. And again, we're reviewing a little from last time, but in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was the Lord's, of course, and all of its fullness uh, the Bible says that because of God's divine creation, the earth, of course, the whole universe, physical universe, belongs to him. Uh, he is the one who made it. Therefore, he is the one who owns it. But then as we studied Genesis chapter 3, we saw how God gave the earth to man. I'm, I'm thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Man, mankind, <laughs> Adam and Eve. And uh, when he created them, he placed them in the Garden of Eden and gave to them the earth to have dominion over it, uh, to be its caretakers, to watch over it, and so on. Of course, in those days before the fall, uh, the earth was going to bring forth everything all by itself. There wouldn't be any uh, uh, plowing and planting and cultivating. Everything would just bring forth naturally. Sin changed that. Part of the curse was that now in the sweat of man's brow, he would have to grow and, and uh, food and, uh, uh, and uh, make his bread and so on just from uh, having to, you know, to, uh, to farm and uh, cultivate and plant and harvest and things. But before the fall, it wasn't like that. It was a paradise situation. So God had them in this beautiful garden. And uh, I don't know how long that lasted before Satan took the form of a serpent. Probably not that long. And uh, chapter 3, we see that Satan took the form of a serpent and he tempted Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very tree God had forbidden them to eat from, lest, he said, they die. Well, Eve was fooled by Satan's deception. Uh, I believe as we've studied Genesis 3 in detail that he promised her uh, that by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she would be enlightened and attain godhood. She bought that. Uh, so she ate, gave to Adam, and he ate. Paul, the apostle, tells us in 1 Timothy, Adam was not deceived. Eve was. Uh, so why did Adam eat? Uh, Adam eat the fruit if he wasn't deceived? Well, some believe it was because after Eve ate, she fell. He loved her so much he knew he couldn't be with her. If he didn't eat the fruit too, maybe that's true. I don't know. Okay. He sure threw her under the bus pretty quick when God confronted him. Okay. So I don't know uh, what his motivation was. I'll go with that first one. Okay. But um, so uh, Adam did eat. And as God said, as soon as they ate the forbidden fruit, they would immediately die. And so they did. However, not physically. Although. Uh, by eating the forbidden fruit and falling, they did set in motion the process of physical death. But what happened immediately is they died spiritually. Having died spiritually, their communion with God was severed. Their communion with God was severed. We've talked about that, so I'm not going to go into it. But their fellowship communion with God was broken. 
Sin had separated them now. Remember Isaiah 59? Uh, my hand is not short that I cannot save, God said, neither is my ear heavy that I cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from me, and uh, your iniquity has caused me to break fellowship with you, is the idea. God cannot look upon sin. He can't have fellowship with sinners. And this was the big conundrum of the ages. How can a holy, righteous God ever have fellowship and communion with fallen sinners? That's what we've been looking at, basically, okay? And so on. So they ate the forbidden fruit and they fell. They died spiritually and their fellowship with God was broken. Uh, I don't know how much they understood before they ate the forbidden fruit. Certainly they understood God had forbidden it. He told them they would die, so, you know, uh, they, they understood a great deal. Uh, I don't know if they understood all the ramifications of what their sin was going to do in their lives and in the lives of all their descendants after them in the world in general. Uh, they probably didn't understand uh, that in eating, eating the forbidden fruit, not only was their fellowship with God severed, they transferred ownership of the earth and all that it contained into the hands of Satan. The planet God gave man was absolutely perfect. Remember, he, after every day of creation, he said, and God saw it was good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. Genesis 1 verse 28 or around there. Uh, after the six days of creation, God stepped back and kind of surveyed all he had done and said it was very good. So it, it, the, the, the world, the universe was perfect, pristine. It had never known any sin up until that point until, of course, Satan took the form of a serpent and he tempted Adam and Eve and they both wound up eating the forbidden fruit. And they probably didn't realize at that moment that what they had done was entered into a legal transaction. They exercised their free will in disobedience toward God and obedience toward the devil. When they did that, they transferred ownership of the world into the hands of Satan, and Satan has corrupted it. Satan has corrupted God's perfect creation. And we've talked about this, but this world is not the world God originally created mankind to live in. It's a fallen, corrupted world. And as such, it is manifestly wrong to blame God, as some do, for all the evil and violence and injustice we see going on around us, this is not God's fault. This is not what God had in mind. God had a perfect environment. He made a paradise for Adam and Eve and all their descendants after them to live in. The world was perfect. God's creation was untainted by sin. That all changed when man of his own free will handed the world and, uh, and all over into the hands of Satan who has corrupted it. You say, well... Well, why is God allowing it? Why, why doesn't God fix it? Uh, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. God fixing it. And ushering in a brand new world. Uh, for a thousand years and then a new creation where God is going to destroy this fallen, tainted creation, heavens and earth. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to live in a new city called New Jerusalem and in a universe that's never been tainted. And by the way, it's going to be a universe that we're not ready to really comprehend right now, I'm convinced. I think it's going to be one planet, one, more, one area of the universe more beautiful than the other. And we'll have eternity to explore it. And we won't move at the speed of light. That's way too slow. I believe we'll move at the speed of thought. It's going to be incredible. But as I just said a moment ago, in that one act of rebellion against God, an act of obedience towards the devil... Not only did the world fall under the dominion of Satan, so did man. Paul said, so you have to turn to this. Paul says something interesting in Romans 6, verse 16, that goes along with what we're talking about. He said, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? I don't know if Paul had the fall in mind. I don't know if Paul was thinking all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where God had basically said, if you obey me, you will enjoy paradise for eternity. You'll never know sickness or death or sorrow or sadness and so on. But if you disobey me, if you eat of this one tree, it's the only prohibition God gave in all the 
environment they would lived in. Just one tree they couldn't eat from. They probably had thousands of fruit-bearing trees. But that one tree, God says, you shall not eat of it. And, uh, of course, when they did that, when they ate of the fruit of that tree, they, they surrendered themselves to slaves as slaves of Satan. And, of course, they stopped being servants of God. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they, immediately trans- they, they were immediately transferred from the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of light and life, to the kingdom of Satan, which is a kingdom of death and darkness. But not only did Adam sin, and of course Eve too, but not only did their sin cause them to become the slaves of Satan, this fall affected all of their descendants after them. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. In Adam means all descendants of Adam are born into a fallen world with fallen bodies that as soon as they are born begin to grow up, but what they're doing is they're eventually going to grow old and die. So, you know, and, 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 and you know, I, I don't think they realized at that moment that what they were going to do or what they, they did was going to affect every descendant of theirs after them. Maybe they did. I don't know. Well, the entire family of Adam was not under the control of the wicked one. The whole world system, but everyone in it. 1 John 5, 19. Uh, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Every man and woman born from that point on will be, would be born into slavery to Satan and sin, doomed to spend eternity in darkness and separation from God unless, unless they could somehow be redeemed. But that would be impossible from a human standpoint because no human being could pay the, could pay the price of redemption, which was sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. The innocent dying for the guilty. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, none of them, man, no no human being, can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Listen, for the redemption of their souls is costly. Well, that's one of the great understatements in the Bible. You know, I mean, sometimes you're going along reading in the Bible, and the Bible makes a statement, okay? But it is one of those great understatements. This is one of those. The redemption of their souls is costly. Yes, so costly, God would have to become a man and die for us. And so the earth which God had given to mankind, they now turned over to Satan. And he became the earth's new owner and man's new master. As we quoted 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 last time, where Paul called Satan the god of this world. The god of this world. He was now in control. Now, guys, let's review again briefly from our last study together on the subject of redemption, because that's what we're in now. This is the the theme of this chapter. In fact, going forward, okay? Jesus Christ, starting in, Gen- in, in Revelation 6, verse 1, begins to... He's already redeemed the world on Calvary's cross. But now he's going to begin to destroy uh, the usurper. We'll talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? But uh, let's talk for a minute about the subject of redemption. And again, from last time, we, we noted that land in Israel was never really sold because it belonged to the Lord in perpetuity. Uh, Psalm 40, uh, 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. He owns it. But back in those days, as God allocated land to the various tribes, remember that was the whole idea when they came into the promised land under Joshua. Uh, at one point, Joshua was getting up there in age, and he couldn't really lead the armies of Israel any longer successfully and God said, Joshua, you're getting too old for this, this uh, warfare stuff, son. What you need to do is, now you need to divide up the land among the 12 tribes, and they're going to divide it up among the families in those tribes, and you're supposed to then, each tribe is to drive out the remaining pockets of enemy opposition so that you can take full control or full ownership of the land I've given you. All right? But in those days... Because every family got land, it was theirs. 
but not really. Not really. Um, what happened was, if you owed a debt as a Jewish person, if you owed a debt you couldn't pay, well, you could sell your land, quote-unquote, to your creditor. But you weren't really selling it. You were really entering into a lease agreement, a lease agreement that had to contain, by law, a redemption clause, which meant if you ever came into some money somehow and you could pay off your debtor, your, your, your creditor, uh, you could do that and they would have to give you the land back for you to go ahead and use again. Now, as we said last time, every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, uh, all slaves went free, all debts were canceled, and all land reverted back to its original owner. So uh, you had that going for you if you didn't come into any money and so on. Uh, you could wait for the year of Jubilee and everything. everybody got a fresh start. So about once in a person's life, everyone got a fresh start. Uh, somebody asked me one time, is declaring bankruptcy a sin? I said, well, you know, I... What, what do you think? If you feel real guilty about it, like you're doing something wrong, well, maybe you shouldn't do it then. However, in Israel, God gave his people once in a lifetime, pretty much, a clean slate. And if a person, through what, no fault of their own medical bills or whatever it might, tragedies where now they can't pay their debt and they're never going to climb out of that hole, uh, it's between you and God, but I don't see biblically where that's a sin. Uh, again, it all depends, though, the circumstances. But um, so you could you could kind of <laughs> lease your land to your creditor, and they would keep it and 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 all, and uh, they would use it, and the money they got from farming it and so on would go to pay your your debt. Now, if you had a blood relative, a kinsman. Uh, with the Hebrew is Goel. If you had a near kinsman, a redeemer, a Goel, that had resources, that had money, uh, they could redeem it for you. In other words, they could pay off your debt, and the property would once again belong to you, belong to you, to use. It was again in your possession. The, a man, according to Jewish law, had to satisfy three requirements to redeem land in Israel, and these are important. So hang on to these. We'll, we'll talk about these more in a moment. But um, if a man was going to redeem land in Israel, they had to satisfy three requirements. First of all, he had to be a kinsman or a blood relative of the person that owed the debt. Number two, he had to be able to redeem the land. In other words, he had to have the price required to redeem it. And number three, he had to be willing. Just because you were a near kinsman didn't mean you had to redeem your relative's land. You, you didn't have to do it. It was totally uh, up to you. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, his purpose in coming was to redeem the world back from the control of Satan. Why? Because God needed another rock spinning in the cosmos, another world? No, no. Because he had to redeem the earth from Satan's control. Listen, listen. So he could have the treasure hidden on the earth. What does that mean? Turn to Matthew 13. Remember the seven kingdom parables. We studied these when we were in Matthew 13. Again, the question is, why did Jesus come to the earth? He came to the earth to redeem the earth. Why? Why did he want this little you know, blue marble spinning in the cosmos. Hasn't he got enough planets scattered throughout the universe? He needed this one? Well, this seems to have, and it doesn't seem to be, it's definitely a unique world. I mean, this seems to be the place where the cosmic battle of the universe, this was ground zero. And by that I mean, this. many believe this was Satan's domain. The, the, the earth was his domain, and because he wanted to be God, uh, God cast him out of heaven, and the earth, I'm getting way off the subject, but this could have been his world. And when he rebelled against God in heaven, he didn't want to be number two. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. Uh, God, you know, cast him out down to earth, 
And uh, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void. The Hebrew is, the earth became tohu wabohu. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew means became a desolate wasteland. It became a desolate wasteland. Some people think that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there was a gap called the gap theory. Now, be careful because people reject that theory because they think we're stuffing dinosaurs and fossils into there, and they rightly say death didn't come until Adam's sin, Genesis 3. So the gap theory is not biblical. Well, we're not saying that death didn't come, didn't come before Genesis 3 and Adam's sin. Bible is very clear about that, right? Romans 7 that says that, um, that uh, the, it, death came as a result of Adam's sin. Very clear, the Bible is, all right? But it could be that this was the devil's world, and God says, okay, I created it, because why would God create something, a desolate wasteland? Our God doesn't create like that, it seems. He creates something finished and beautiful, Right? Why go that route? Why create the world a desolate wasteland only to recreate it beautiful and lush and tropical and, and so on? Some people believed it was the devil's sin that caused God to judge the world. And uh, the Bible says in Isaiah that God did not create the world tohu wavohu. He created it to be inhabited. So if he didn't create it that way, what caused it to become a desolate wasteland? Many people believe it was Satan's sin. And God said, you want to be like the Most High? Go ahead, now you've recreated. Go ahead. And it may have lay in that condition for eons before God stepped in again and said, let there be light, and he recreated it. And again, I'm sorry, I'm getting way off the subject. Uh, I'm just saying, though, that um, the Lord redeemed this world not because he needed another rock in the cosmos he redeemed it because he had to redeem it to gain the treasure that was upon it in matthew 13 verse 44 jesus said again the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure or like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for the joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field in, in parables, the field is often uh, analogous to the world. Okay, the world. And um, the treasure, what is the treasure? Well, there's different interpretations. You can go online and listen to that uh, study we did uh, on this subject. Um, I, I'm going to tell you what I think it is, cutting through all the other interpretations. Uh, I believe that the treasure is not salvation. Some people say, well, the treasure was salvation. And if a, when a person is on their journey in this world and they stumble upon salvation, they go out and sell all they had. Didn't Jesus say that to the rich young ruler? Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. See, and that's what we need to do. That's what the treasure, it's salvation. I, I reject that. First of all, where does it say we initiate salvation? Where does it ever say we're out looking for salvation? The, the Savior, the shepherd is looking for us, right? I believe the field is the world. I believe the treasure is, well, some people say the bride of Christ. Some people say Israel and or the bride of, we, I don't, but it's, it's God's people, okay? Let's, let's say the church. Let's say the church. Because I believe that's definitely in view. The treasure is all of us. And Jesus died to redeem this world back from the hands of Satan, but really what he was after was the treasure upon it. His bride. His bride. Guys, Satan has taken control of the earth. He is now the god of this world, as we just said earlier. But he's a usurper. He's a usurper. The word usurper means usurper means to seize and hold an office, a place, or powers in possession by force without right. To supplant. The earth doesn't really belong to the devil in the sense of ownership. He only controls it. Just like a piece of property in Israel's day. If you couldn't afford to pay your debt, right? God gave to each family land. 
it really wasn't theirs completely. I mean, he allowed them to use it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belonged to God, but they could lease it to somebody else, a creditor. The creditor didn't own it, but he had control of it. And that's what we see going on here, I believe, that the earth really doesn't belong to the devil in the sense of ownership. He only controls it. It's still in the possession of God. Again, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, which is why, if you think about it, Satan is not the owner of the earth, even though he controls it, which is why the scroll, the title deed to the earth, is in the Father's right hand, chapter 5, verse 1, and not in Satan's right hand. But Adam transferred control of the earth to Satan in a legal transaction. And because it was a legal transaction, the devil didn't take the world from Adam and Eve. They gave it to him by virtue of obeying what he had decreed. He promised them godhood. Oh, that sounds good. We'll take it. Here's the world. We'll take godhood. At least Eve felt that way. And did Satan come through? Did he give her godhood? Yeah. But she didn't read the fine print. She would be a god with a little g. A grasper after godhood. There's only one true and living God. And ever since the Garden of Eden, man has wanted to be a god. And we have all kinds of religious movements and things where man is trying to ascend to godhood through enlightenment fill in the blank but this was a legal transaction the devil didn't force adam to give up the world and therefore when adam of his own free will gave the control of the world over to the devil god had to honor that he had to uphold his own law and so on which means if he wanted to deliver control of this world out of the hands of satan he would need to send a go well a redeemer verse 2 then I saw, Revelation 5, verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? In other words, who is able to meet the requirements to pay off the debt? Notice he does not say, Who is willing? One author comments, and I'm quoting him, Alexander the Great was willing. Genghis Khan was willing. Napoleon was willing. Hitler was willing. There have been lots of people who have said, I want to be in power. I want to control the earth. But the angel doesn't ask who is willing. The angel asks who is worthy. End quote. And notice that when the question is asked, the powerful archangel Michael does not answer. The mighty angel Gabriel does not answer. None of the millions or billions of other angels make a sound. None of the righteous in the Old Testament period, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, or any of the others, says a word. None of the righteous in the New Testament period, including Peter, Paul, or any of the other apostles, nor anyone else from the church age steps forward because they felt they were worthy. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So a search of the entire universe from heaven to hell and all points in between turns up no one worthy to open the scroll. No one in all the universe could be found worthy to break the seals. Not in heaven, in other words, no angel. Not on earth, no living human being nor even under the earth, any of those who had died prior who lived a righteous life. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look upon it. And this wasn't a little thing. This scroll was uh, the title deed to the earth, and no one could even look at it as, as if they could even begin to satisfy what was required to begin to open it. No wonder John wept. For he realized that God's glorious plan of redemption for mankind could never be completed until the scroll was open. Verse 4, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll 
or to look at it. Guys, the Greek word translated wept much actually means sobbed convulsively. Sobbed convulsively. John is overcome with uncontrollable grief as he realizes that if no man is found worthy to take the scroll from the Father's right hand and open it, well, the earth would forever remain under the control of Satan. And that was a thought that John couldn't tolerate. And so he sobbed convulsively. Verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. A title deed can be opened only by the appointed heir. And only the appointed heir could redeem the world from the control of the devil. But according to Jewish law, that heir had to be a relative of the human race, a go-well. Well, of course, that heir is Jesus Christ, and Jesus became our redeemer, our go-well. Did he satisfy the three requirements that were necessary to redeem land? Well, he certainly did. He's a kinsman, in other words, a blood relative by coming of the human race, by coming down from heaven and being born of a woman. I mean, that's not a small thing. Of course, he didn't have an earthly father because the sin, sin is passed down from the father to the children. If Jesus Christ would have had an earthly father, he would have been born a sinner, a fallen sinner, and there's no way he could have redeemed the universe, right, mankind. Um, so, you know, and, and I heard a pastor one time at a conference say something. I, I was just really taken back. He said that Mary was nothing more than a receptacle for the Christ child to grow in the womb before being born. And I'm like, are you serious? Nothing more than a receptacle. Uh, Jesus got his humanity from Mary. It was through Mary that he became a kinsman redeemer. That's not a small thing. How do you overlook that? How do you even come to that conclusion? That Mary was just a warm receptacle that God put the Christ child in as an embryo, but he didn't get anything from Mary. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course he did. From Mary, he got his humanity. He got the right uh, to redeem as a kinsman redeemer. I, I don't get it. But so he was a kinsman, a blood relative of the human race through Mary. Number two, he was able to redeem us. He was able. He alone could die for the guilty, for the guilty as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So he was able. He could pay the price. The price was sinless perfection. He was born without sin, lived a sinless life. He was tempted in all parts as we are yet without sin, uh, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, right? So he was able to pay the price of redemption, sinless perfection, and he was willing. He said, no man takes my life from me, I give it freely for the sheep. And so at this supreme moment of despair and hopelessness, when all seem lost, one of the elders says to John, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Now that phrase is very important, the lion, first of all, but I'm thinking of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 49. Why don't you turn there? In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. And he summons his 12 sons who circle the bed. And as he's on his deathbed, he props himself up a little bit, leaning on his staff. And he begins to go around the bed, prophesying over each of his 12 sons. In verse 8, when he gets to his fourth son, he prophesied, Judah... You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Judah means praise. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is a messianic term and means 
until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom it belongs. It refers ultimately to Jesus, to Jesus' rightful rule and authority over the whole world during the millennial kingdom. A right that was established at the cross when he shed his blood and redeemed the world back to, we often say, redeemed the world back to God. I've done that. But as I was thinking about it more and more, he actually didn't redeem the world back to God. God owns it. He redeemed the world. Now listen, hear me out. He redeemed the world back to man. Back to man. As God, the owner, had given it to man to rule over in the garden, right? In the Garden of Eden, God gave the earth to man. Said, it's yours, have dominion over it. Belongs to me, I'm letting you have control of it. The first man, Adam, Adam means man actually. The first Adam turned the earth over to Satan in an act of his own free will. The last Adam, as he is called in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, purchased or redeemed it back so that man could take his rightful place, his God-given rightful place to rule over the earth once again. Now, the ruler of the earth is going to be a man, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by him going to the cross, he redeemed the world. Yes, you know, we say back under the control of God. Well, God is ultimately in control of everything, right? I mean, God never stopped being sovereign over the earth, all right? Although he lets the devil have a lot of liberty because the devil has been given control of the earth. And so God lets the devil have a a pretty broad uh, spectrum of control. Uh, But God is ultimately in control. And God does let Satan um, get away with a lot, but it all is feeding into God's ultimate plan, which is redemption, the cross, and of course now we're looking forward to the coming of Christ in the kingdom age. But I just want you to see this, okay? The first Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden was given control of the earth, but he uh, gave it over into Satan's hands to control The last Adam redeemed the world back to man in the sense that man would again rule over it. Uh, People that believe that the uh, kingdom age is not literal, it's uh, metaphorical. Uh, You know, the millennium, right? Uh, You you hear the term amillennial, okay? Uh, In Greek, if you put an A before a word, it negates it. So millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ. No, no, I'm an amillennialist. I don't believe there's a literal thousand reign of Christ coming. There's a lot of great scholars that believe that, that there is no such thing as a literal kingdom coming. Uh, They're amillennialists, okay? There's a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is there was a real fall where a real man gave control of the world over into the hands of Satan. And if a real man didn't take control back and reign as God had given the original Adam the right to reign over the entire world, if we didn't have another Adam, the last Adam come, redeem the world back and sit literally on a throne over the entire earth, Satan doesn't, is not defeated. Satan's not defeated. I mean, so you, you have to have a literal millennial kingdom. Because that is the victory of Jesus Christ being played out and everything going back to what God originally intended when he gave the world into the control of mankind, or man, Adam, to rule over. The scepter, the scepter in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Until Shiloh comes. The scepter is a symbol. Listen now. The scepter is the symbol of a sovereign nation. A king has a scepter, right? It speaks of authority. It speaks of government. The scepter is the symbol of a sovereign nation and is emblematic of the right of that nation to impose capital punishment on crimes that warrant the death penalty as every sovereign sovereign nation has the right to do. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, 
the right of capital punishment was taken away from the nation of Israel in 6 AD. In the spring of that year, the Romans issued a decree declaring that the Jewish people would no longer be allowed to carry out capital punishment in their land. The rabbi's response to that decree was immediate. They believed capital punishment was the cornerstone of sovereign government as defined in the Noahic Covenant. They rightly understood that when Rome denied them this fundamental right of governance, it in essence deprived them of their sovereign nation status and officially rendered them as a vassal state of Rome. But it was bigger than that. It was bigger than that. When that happened, when Rome took away their right to capital punishment, the rabbis fluttered into the streets of Jerusalem. They tore their clothes, put ashes on their heads, and went through the streets of Jerusalem, smiting their breasts, weeping and wailing. In fact, we are told the whole nation was filled with the wailing, especially of rabbis, who understood something terrible had happened. What? The scriptures had been broken. The scriptures had been broken. The promise of God had failed. The right of capital punishment, again, the right of a sovereign nation had been taken from them. The scepter had departed from Judah and Shiloh. Messiah had not come. You can imagine. I mean, they, they were beside themselves with anguish. I mean, it was more than just that Rome took away our right to capital punishment. They saw the bigger picture, that the scriptures had been broken. God told us the scepter would not depart from Shiloh until Messiah came. The scepter has been taken from us, and Messiah has not yet come. The scriptures have been broken. I mean, they were devastated. What they didn't realize at that time was 70 miles to the north in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth. There was a young boy living with his mother and stepdad, working in his stepfather's carpenter shop named Jesus. The word of God had not failed. The Messiah had come before the scepter had departed from Judah. Revelation 5, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The Bible says that Jesus was born of the house and lineage of David, right? Do you know it says that for an important reason? First of all, house means the royal family. David was the royal family, right? His descendants were, David was the, the second king of Israel, but he was God's man. And uh, after he replaced Saul as king of Israel, uh, God promised that the messianic line would go right through David. It was the royal line, because Messiah would someday come and rule over the whole earth, not just Israel. So that was the royal line. David through Solomon and down that lineage, excuse me, that, uh, that family tree. Lineage, he was of the house, okay, the royal family through Joseph, but also the lineage of David. What does that mean? It means the bloodline of David. When you study the genealogy in Matthew's gospel of Jesus Christ, and you study the genealogy in Luke's gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't match. They do up till David, but, but then they don't match. And skeptics are all over that. See, the, you can't trust the Bible. Look at these two genealogies of Jesus. They're, all, they're both different. The Bible's just full of nonsense. What the skeptics don't understand is that David was the royal line. Messiah had to descend from David because David was promised that through him Messiah would sit on the throne of Israel. And the royal line went from David through Solomon and down through that um, branch of David's family. The problem was that by the time you got to a king named Jeconiah, a, a descendant of David, the kings of, of uh, Israel were getting worse and worse. This was of Judah, I'm thinking. 
the southern kingdom. And by the time you got to Jeconiah, uh, centuries later, after David had died, the kings had gotten progressively worse. Jeconiah was horrendous. Horrendous. He was so bad that God pronounced a blood curse on the family of Jeconiah so that none of his descendants would ever sit again on the throne of Israel. So now God, so now God curses the royal line. And I'm sure Satan and his demons must have thrown a party at that moment. Maybe a Halloween party. I don't know. Because in their mind, they had won. They had defeated God's plan because Messiah could not come from a cursed line. The house of Joseph. Joseph was of that royal line. But he was a stepfather to Jesus. But see, God got around his, around his own blood curse because what happens in Matthew, the genealogy goes from David through Solomon down the royal line. You come to the genealogy of Christ in Luke's gospel, it comes down to David, but instead of going through Solomon, the royal line, it goes to another son of David, Nathan, who was also a blood descendant of David. So the blood of David was in Nathan's veins. And Nathan, of course, was the lineage down through which Mary was born. So God got to run his own blood curse. Through Joseph, he had the legal right to reign because in Israel... A stepfather, any children he adopted, uh, especially the boys, would receive the full benefit of what his father had. So all the rights of the father, when they adopted, uh, we'll say, a son, all the rights of that father conferred onto the, to the adopted son. So Jesus, by virtue of the fact that he was adopted by Joseph, Joseph was of the royal line, he received the legal right to reign. But Joseph bore the blood curse. So through Nathan down to Mary, Jesus received the blood of David without the curse, the blood curse upon it. Isn't the Lord amazing? Skeptics, they quickly read the Bible because all they want to do is find something they can use to dismiss it. They don't understand how incredible God's word really is, right? So, but, but, it says here that, that Jesus was of the root of David. Root speaks of origin. Origin. The question is, how is Jesus a descendant of David and yet called the root of David, or in other words, someone that David himself descended from? Okay, think about that. How is Jesus a, Jesus a descendant of David? And yet he is called the root of David, which means that David himself descended from him. Turn to Matthew 22. At this point, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests had all banded together in kind of like a tag team situation where they were trying to stump Jesus to find things that they could accuse him of to, you know, have him crucified. So at this point, it gets kind of fun because every time they come with a little trick question, a little something they think they've got him, he always turns the tables. I love it, right? Here's one of these questions, okay? Um... After they gave their little trick question and Jesus just destroys them, then he turns around and asks them a question. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, the son of David, of course. Everyone knows he's going to be the son of David. Jesus said to them, verse 43, how then does David in the spirit, in other words, in scripture, the Psalms, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare, 
dare question him anymore. It's amazing how it's interesting how some people think they know the Bible so well. And we can all be guilty of this, right? We cannot be smug like we know it all. Because oftentimes, well, I know not often, always, we don't know it as well as we think we do. Uh, that was really true of the Pharisees, okay? Very smug answer. Well, okay, well, let me ask you. Uh, the, the, um, the Christ, whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah going to be? Of course, David, of course. What kind of a question is that? Son of David, we know that. Well, then how does David in Scripture call him Lord? See, the son, give me the, the um, father, never called the son Lord. You never called your, uh, your son Lord. The son called you Lord, right? So if the Messiah is going to be the son of David, David being the older, his Lord, how does, the, how does David in the Spirit say, the Lord said to my Lord, speaking of Messiah. How does David call the Messiah Lord if Messiah is going to be his son? Well, they had no answer to that. We know, of course. We know the answer, of course, because Jesus Christ was going to be born of one of the, the descendants of David. But, of course, before David, he existed. He's God. Before the incarnation, Jesus Christ has always been. In the beginning was the Word. What beginning? Pick one. Doesn't matter how far back you go. He was already already there. He's eternal, right? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Was it Micah 5.2, I think, something like that? Uh, but we know that Jesus Christ, of course, is eternal. He's God, the second person of the Trinity. So when he became a man, okay, sure, he became a descendant of David, but he's still God incarnate. And David in the Spirit called him Lord because he is David's Lord. Now we understand that. They didn't get it. But that's how he could be the root of David, the root of David uh, and all, but uh, that um, somebody that David descended from, and yet he still be, is still the, uh, the son of David. Well, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven Seals. Now, at this point, John turns around expecting, no doubt, to see a lion. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. John spins around expecting, I think, to see a lion. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood, what? A lamb. Listen. As though it had been, what? Slain. John sees a lamb as though it had been slain. As we read the Gospels, in all the post-resurrection accounts, well, most of them that we read, it seems that it seemed that none of the disciples of Jesus recognized him after his resurrection. You think about that. As we read the Gospels and all the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, um, none of his disciples or followers actually recognized him. Mary didn't recognize him at the tomb. She thought he was the gardener. People say, well, she was crying. Her eyes were all puffy. Maybe she just didn't see real well at that moment. She thought he was the gardener, right? The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. It wasn't until they invited him to eat with them and he broke the bread that their eyes were opened. Was it because they saw the nail prints in his hands? I don't know. We know in John 21, verse 4, when the apostles had fished all night and in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but it says, but they didn't recognize him. Well, it was early in the morning, the, the mist still coming up off the Sea of Galilee. Maybe it, just, maybe it, 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 it hid their view of him. Okay. All right, but remember when they finally got to the shore, when they got there, Jesus had a fire going and some fish on the fire cooking. And it says in John 21, verse 12, something very disturbing. He's there, they're, they're right in front of him now. He's got the fish cooking on the fire. And John says, and none of us dared ask him, who are you? 
knowing it was the Lord. Something was going on. Something was not right about his appearance. What was it? Well, of course, in the Gospels, we read how that when the soldiers arrested Jesus, they abused him. They abused, they spit on him, of course. That was a real sign of derision in the, uh, in the Oriental culture. Uh, you know, they, they spit on him, uh, a, a sign of total disdain. But it says they put a bag over his head, and they beat him with rod, uh, rods, but they also punched him. You put a bag over somebody's head, they can't see the punch coming. You know, naturally, God has made us where we will just react. If we see a, a blow coming, we, we move out of the way instinctively so that the blow is softened. You know, if you put a bag over somebody's head and they can't see the punch coming, when these soldiers were hitting him, he wasn't able to react and, and get away. So the full blow of their fists were pounding him in the face. I, I don't know how many blows he took. It was, uh, I'm sure it was many. Isaiah tells us something that we don't even read in the Gospels. That they pulled his beard out with their hands, disfiguring the Lord. Turn to Isaiah chapter 52. You've got to highlight these if you haven't done it. Not now, but in the future. So I'm going somewhere with this, and then we'll close. Okay? Isaiah tells us they pulled his beard out with their hands, disfiguring the Lord. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you. Now God the Father is talking about the Son, prophesied. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The Hebrew, I think, is a little clumsy. I'm not a scholar, but this is what I've heard. What is being communicated was that he was so disfigured, he was no longer recognizable as a man, is the idea. Could that be why Pilate said, Behold the man? Could Pilate be saying, This is a man? I've never seen anyone take the beating and the abuse this man has taken and is still standing. So his visage was marred more than any, any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what they had not been told, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Chapter 40, excuse me, chapter 53, verse 2. He has no form or comeliness. Comeliness is just a word that means beauty or loveliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What I believe is being said is that um, when Jesus Christ finally returns and he takes control of the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, there are going to be earthly kings that are going to come and pay him homage. And when they look at him, they're going to be horrified. I was never told this. I, 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 this is like we were never told what he really went through. When we see him, he's going to have no form, no beauty that we should desire him. We're going to be repulsed. We're going to be sickened. We know that after his resurrection, he continued to bear the marks of his crucifixion. In the upper room, the night of his resurrection... Remember, he showed his disciples the nail wounds in his hands and feet and the spear wound in his side. Remember that? When he returned to heaven, after he ascended, he still bore the marks of his crucifixion. John tells us in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 6, that he saw Jesus as a lamb who had been slain. 
Isaiah tells us that when we finally see him as the church at the rapture, we will turn our faces away in shock and horror at the sight of him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We're going to look at him and turn away in horror, shock. At the moment of the rapture, when we see him face to face, right? Now we see us through a glass darkly or a dirty window, but then face to face. And in that instant when the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts, and we are instantly caught up into the sky to meet the Lord in the air, the first thing we're going to do when we lay eyes on him is turn away. The sight of him is going to be so horrible, the disfigurement, that we are going to turn away in shock and horror. When Jesus returns to the earth at his second coming, he will still bear the marks of his crucifixion. Zechariah 12, verse 10 tells us they will look upon him whom they have pierced. How long, you ask, will he bear these marks? I don't know. Maybe forever. And if so, could this be what Paul meant in Ephesians 2, verse 7, when he said that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. It could be that he's going to bear the marks of his crucifixion for all eternity that um, we never forget what he went through willingly out of love, what he endured that we might be saved. I think it's a good idea to prepare yourself for your first glimpse of Jesus, it might be a very shocking experience. A shocking experience that will quickly give way to eternal love and gratitude for what he was willing to endure that we might be saved. And I'll tell you this, that we would forever remember that the price of our redemption was costly. And there was no way we could ever have redeemed ourselves. You know, when you think about this, one of the draws, I think, that the pagan world had with, with regard to Christ, they were used to gods that you would have to sacrifice people to appease. To appease. You know, you know, many of the gods of the pagans, they, they required human sacrifice. But the God of the Christians was a God that sacrificed himself for humans. That was something they couldn't fathom. Why would he do that? Because of his great love wherewith he loved us. He didn't have to. It was because of the great love he had for us. Fallen man. Not looking at anything in us that was worthy of redemption. Um, or giving God a reason to redeem us. Oh, i got to redeem him or her. They're really special. We're all fallen sinners. In us there dwells no good thing. Any of us. There's nothing good within us. We are fallen sinners. And as such, God has every right to doom us to, to eternal separation in hell forever. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish in hell but have everlasting life. And we finally see him. He's going to be driven home, I think, in a way we can't even imagine right now. How much he did love us. And how grateful we need to be forever as we see him. And uh, so we will end there. And this will be our last study now until the new year. So just to let you know, you can read ahead. Um, we'll, we'll, I'll email you the test. Um, but uh, we will meet again uh, the Wednesday after the new year, after uh, the first, okay? Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. And Lord Jesus, your great love that caused you to come down and die on the cross for sinners such as we. We just thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We, we are so grateful right now, but we can't even imagine how grateful we're going to be when we finally see you. Yes, horrified for a, a moment, shocked beyond comprehension, but then 
immediately dissolving, that shock dissolving into such eternal love and gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And we ask for grace that we live for you. You died for us. Give us the grace to live for you in these last days. We just thank you now, Lord. We ask you to bless the rest of this year. And uh, we just pray you'd bless this church and us and our families going forward in the new year. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.